all I'm saying is you're not going to be kicking it by the beach, enjoying yourself while you're building your business. Your first year is going to test the hell out of you. So just ask yourself, do I want it badly enough to go through all of that? And if you do, then yeah, fuck yeah, you can be an entrepreneur. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikkel Karshavsky, and welcome to episode 141 of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm so excited to be joined by Elise LeMay, a copywriter and content writer focused on the creator economy, the future of work, and personal development. Elise has also worked with prominent creators like Matt Diavella and Jack Butcher, and her work has appeared on publications like The Daily Beast, The Startup, and Visualize Value. I first came across Elise's work on Twitter, where she has gained a following of over 16,000 people in a very short time span because of her transparent sharing of the realities of running a creative freelance business. You will learn three important things from this interview. Number one, how travel can improve your chances of landing a great job or client. Number two, why building a Twitter audience can be one of the best things you do in your business and how to do so. And finally, number three, Elise and I discuss the future of work and the creator economy. But before we jump into this interview, guys, make sure that you subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Remote Insider. Every Monday morning, I send out a brief but informative email with all the top news from the digital nomad world so you never get left out. From upcoming conferences and new digital nomad visas to technology breakthroughs and the newest developments in remote work, this is the easiest way to become a remote insider. It's completely free and you can sign up at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Elise LeMay. All right, Elise, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you uh, on the show. I've been following you on Twitter for for, uh, quite a while now, and I've just found your story and your journey so uh, incredibly inspirational. So I'm very excited to uh, you know, kind of share your story with all the listeners. So welcome to the podcast and also congratulations on uh, setting off on your uh, digital nomad journey for the first time, uh, which you told me you're doing uh, right before we hit record. So welcome to the digital nomad ranks, so to say. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm stoked to be here, stoked to get into it. And of course, stoked to start this next chapter. Although a little bit nervous, but that, hey, that's expected. <laughs> the, the nerves are normal. So tell me, you said that you're yeah. going to Medellin, Colombia first. Do you have any sort mm-hmm. of plans as to like where you're going to go next or are you just kind of taking it one step at a time? I think one step at a time. I already did uh, the whole Southeast Asia trek, although I'd love to go back. But yeah, I think for now, South America is seems next level and I would love to just explore and just see what's out there. Yeah. Yeah, South America has like a lot of these benefits that I didn't even think about at first, where, for example, like in two hours, one of my best friends is coming here to visit my wife and I for a week. And that's not really something that, you know, people can do if you're in Southeast Asia or even if you're in Europe. It's not really like 
an easy weekend trip, you know. So I think it's very no. nice to be <laughs> in Latin America, have friends and family come visit. It's it's especially when you're just getting started, it's very nice to to be able to do that. Do you yeah, have any 100%. sort of places that are on your must visit list? Gosh, yeah. I would say Shoot, I wish I should have prepared before. There are so many places, but then now you ask and I'm like, oh, I forget. But <laughs> I think, uh, honestly, just keep going around South America. I'd love to backpack around Europe, even though like I'm European, I'm French. I haven't done that yet. Um, I'd love to go to Australia and do the East Coast all over again, go to Uluru. Basically, I literally want to leave New York City and just not come back. <laughs> just one way for a long time. Yeah, that's the goal primarily. I, I I feel yeah, yeah. Europe is is a good time. I mean, obviously I'm always talking about Europe because uh I spend half the summer in Europe and I just think it's such mm -hmm. a good place to work remotely because like one of the unknown benefits or I think the benefit that not a lot of people think about is you get to wake up, nobody bothers you if you work with US clients until mm -hmm. like the early afternoon, then you have like 2-3 hours of overlap and you're done. So uh, it's yeah. a very nice like work schedule. But uh, anyways, I like I said, I'm so excited to have you on here. And before we kind of jump into talking about freelancing and, uh, you know, writing and copywriting, which you have a lot of experience in, I do want to touch on a, a story that I read on your blog of <laughs> an internship that you uh, went and, and took an and interviewed for with a music industry, with a music company. Mm -hmm. And the reason why yeah. I want to talk about this was that I found it very funny that you said that during the interview, uh, you just spent the entire interview talking about your travel experience backpacking around Southeast Asia. And the reason why I want to touch on this very quickly is I speak with a lot of um, people in high school or in college who are really worried about taking the time to travel because mm -hmm. they think it's going to look negatively on a resume or on a job application. And what I always tell them is like, no, the people interviewing you are going to be so much more interested in what you did when you traveled, your backpacking experience. And, you know, you're mm -hmm. going to be talking about that and kind of uh, distinguish yourself from the other candidates. So it seems like you had a similar experience to that. Like, would you, would you say having gone through that, to people like, hey, go ahead and take the time, go travel, go backpack. It will be a benefit to you when you go apply for jobs. Like, would you agree with that? Yeah, 100% I would agree with that. If there's anything that makes me sad, it's people who don't travel because they are afraid of a gap on their resume. Oh my God, what a scam that is. Like, <laughs> if there's one thing that I would tell you for anyone who might be postgraduate, doesn't want the gap in the resume, there's two things that I would encourage you to think about. The first is that a gap in your resume is whatever you make of it. So to illustrate this point, for instance, I had dinner with a friend. She really wants to go to Tokyo for a few months. She's uh, an interior designer and she really wants to go around, you know, like Tokyo, other places in Japan. And she's like, I can't do that. I can't have a gap in my resume. And I was like, you are an interior designer. If you go around these places in the world collecting inspiration and using it as a part of your career development and selling that on your resume as part of your long-term trajectory, no one's going to bat an eye. And you can replace interior designer with writer, with with uh, chef, you know, like there's so you can make that gap work for you if you are creative enough and incorporate it into your story. The second thing I would say is that especially this goes to people who just graduated, your career will be waiting for you sooner or later. And there's no need to rush into it. When I first traveled after 
I graduated college. I bartended for six months, saved as, as much money as I could, and then I traveled for six months. Um, it was the best decision of my life. And once you find yourself in a career that makes you happy, that makes you fulfilled, it is so hard to peel away from that momentum, from your trajectory. So when you have that gap of unadulterated freedom, don't rush to close it. Embrace it. That career will always be waiting for you. Yeah, for sure. And I also think like far too many people are still focusing on resumes. And yeah. uh, my thing is that I always tell young, like young people, I sound like I'm like 55, mm. but like <laughs> when I tell like, you know, people who are just kind of entering the job market is like, if your first, you know, like attempt to get a job is like with the resume, then you're doing something wrong. Like you need to do Agreed. something opposite than that to get people's attention. And this is something I had Jordan Carroll on the podcast. And this is like what he was talking about is like, mm -hmm. get creative, you know? So if you're traveling, yeah. like how can you use that experience to really bring more attention to yourself and to separate yourself from everybody else who's also going for that same job? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. So how did you, I know that you kind of started your copywriting journey during COVID. So take me back to then when you were working at this music company, what happened? Like what made you think, you know what, I'm going to stop this nine to five thing that I've been dreaming of my entire life to work for a music company. And instead I'm going to become a freelancer. I'm going to start working uh, remotely and writing. How did that happen? Like, tell me that story. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I'll take you back to the scene. It was, you know, like April or no, maybe like March, 2020 before COVID slammed into New York city. And essentially I was working three jobs. I was interning at BMG I was uh, working at a boxing studio, so I'd wake up at 4 a.m. to open the boxing studio, and then I would go intern at BMG, and then I would go bartend on, on Bowery. So I would literally start my days from 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. 4 a.m. to, yeah, 4 a.m. Like, I'd have, like, crazy days. So I was on this trajectory where I didn't have any time to think. COVID happened, and I lost all three of those jobs in one go, and it was necessary because it allowed me to stop ask myself those bigger questions. What am I doing? What am I working for? Do I like the trajectory I'm in? And the answer was no. So I was like, okay, well, if it's not this, then what is it? And I'd always had an affinity for writing, but had no idea how to make it a profitable career. I only imagined like JK Rowling or Stephanie Meyer, <laughs> you know, like big book authors. And I figured the best way to do it was to just apply for fellowships on LinkedIn. So I began applying to BuzzFeed, Vice, Fox, you name it. I applied and I got rejected from every single one. Classic. <laughs> and you, I started to just get really frustrated and I had an epiphany where I realized that I'm just not going to wait around for someone to give me an opportunity to start this in this career field. I'll just teach myself. So I began writing and posting articles on Medium, posting on Twitter and building a small audience on that platform, as well as reading as much as I could get my hands on about copy and content writing, connecting with other freelancers, getting on the phone with them, and eventually working one-on-one -on -one with a freelance writing coach who helped me land my first client at $250 an article, which was game-changing. And that's how everything started. So copywriting is one of these things that has been around forever in the online world. I mean, I even mm -hmm. remember when I got started in 2016, copywriting was like, hey, if you're getting started, copywriting is a really great way to make money online, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that made me not want to follow into the copywriting realm was the fact that like everybody was a copywriter and there's so many copywriters. So how would you say like, 
how can you distinguish yourself or separate yourself from everyone else doing it? Like, how did you sort of build that personal brand, quote unquote, for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think I have to credit Twitter massively with that differentiation factor. Uh, I think if there's one thing that really differentiates, you know, for instance, in my case with other copywriters or writers in general, is that today the process of becoming a freelance writer is so different than what it was five to 10 years ago. And the way that I did it was through harnessing the power of the internet. And if you use your cards right and you leverage those tools to your disposal, you can become profitable in three months instead of three years. So the way I did it is I just shared my journey in public, even the bad parts, the parts where I failed. And I was consistent every single day. And I took on work that didn't align just to just to get as much experience as possible. But essentially what it is, is you build in public, you share what you're learning. And yeah, just I think my differentiator is just using social media to become that person, to become that writer in such a short time. So yeah, that's how I would differentiate yourself. <laughs> yeah. Twitter is one of those things where even though it's been around for like years and years, I mean, I think it was like one of the first social media platforms, mm -hmm. right? The interesting yeah. thing with Twitter is that I still think it's very dominant. Uh, and it's one of these platforms on which you can really build a personal brand that can take you very far in business. And it's something that I've like rediscovered recently as well, because I'm like, Hey, a lot of the people that want to talk about the sort of nerdy things I like to talk about are on Twitter. So let's be there yeah. more. What sort of like mm -hmm. tips do you have for people? I mean, I know that you said, you know, build in public and, and share those, uh, you know, your experience, but what other tips do you have for people who are maybe uh, in a similar position to what you are in, in terms of, you know, trying to start a freelancing business, trying to grow their personal brand, uh, what sort of tips do you have for them to really harness the power of Twitter? Yeah, that's a good question. So when it comes to growing on Twitter, everyone starts from zero, right? And my like over my general advice is to tweet once a day to be as consistent as possible. But if you have like zero followers, that's not going to cut it, right? Because you might be speaking, but who are you and what do you bring to the table? So if you are brand new, if you are a freelance writer, obviously you like to write, right? You know, that's what you're good at. You can distill complex information and you can have interesting takes on things. So in my case, what I did is I interacted with big name players. And one of the very first things I did to grow on Twitter was I saw David Perel and Matthew Kobach. I think I'm saying that right. They had a Twitter workshop where they basically posted a YouTube video about how to grow on Twitter. It was phenomenal. It had tens of thousands of views, I think. And I was like, I'm going to write an article about this and I'm going to make it the best article that there is. So I did that and I posted it on Twitter and I tagged them and they got their attention. They retweeted me and I got like a boost of followers. So essentially you need to find, you should piggyback off of people with large accounts and you should use your writing and curation capabilities to create articles and threads that you then post on Twitter. You need to interact with people, like piggyback off those big accounts, reply, retweet, be as interactive as possible. That's how you'll grow. So yeah, I'd recommend following the big players, um, interacting with them, and then you have to create something of your own. You have to have a project and bring it to the table. Tweeting once a day about your stream of consciousness was not going to get people to follow you. Like do work that serves other people. And that is how you will grow when you're, when you're brand new to the platform. 
Yeah, I think that's like something that Arvid Call talks about. And I think I'm pronouncing his mm-hmm. name correctly, like talks about a lot on Twitter is like, if you're just getting started, you know, tweeting a lot is great. But, mm-hmm. it, you know, like you're, you're, you're tweeting into uh, the like, you know, into nothingness because nobody's following you. Like what he really suggests is like really interacting, like find your 10, 20 people that, you know, you really mm-hmm. resonate with and interact with. Uh, all of their stuff and really spend the time doing that because otherwise, you know, no one's listening and you kind of need to earn that listenership, right. To be able to then Mm -hmm. uh, tweet a lot. How do you, have you been able to like get jobs off of Twitter? Like, are are you able to use it to literally bring in work or do you use it more as like a, like a, like a way to establish your brand? Yeah, I would say both, but to be quite honest, 70% of my of my work comes through Twitter. It's actually bonkers. Like, yeah, 9 out of 10 of the clients that I've worked with came through social media, and it's it's nuts. Like, that's just the power of it. And for the record, like, yeah, today I might have 16,000, which is, by the for the record, a vanity metric. doesn't stand anything. But when I did have couple thousand maybe like I started getting leads for work when I was at like 3k followers you really don't need to be at that high to start seeing it work for you and have opportunities come for you like I went from applying on jobs to LinkedIn getting rejected without anyone ever considering my application to my DM and inbox getting flooded with requests all because you use social media to create and share what's on your mind and it's nuts it can really do wonders for you if you know how to use it right well i think we forget what a couple of thousand people means right like yeah almost like like a thousand people can fill a small stadium you know and if it's the right a thousand people then that's really powerful and so many people Mm -hmm. get so focused on having ten thousand twenty like whatever it may be and we forget just how powerful it is to have a couple hundred people, a couple thousand people. You know, you don't need to have huge numbers. Uh, I know a business consultant who, on by all accounts on social media, nobody knows who he is, but I know what he charges. Mm-hmm. And he definitely charges very high numbers because the right people know who he is. And so yeah. I think, you know, even if you have a couple hundred people uh, on Twitter that you connected with, if it's the right 100 people, then mm-hmm. it can be very powerful. Now, were you exactly. reaching out to people? Uh, were you like pitching? Uh, were you doing like cold pitches to get those first couple of jobs? And, and if you were, mm-hmm. what sort of tips do you have for people to do that? Yeah. I mean, the, my first ever clients uh, were through cold pitching because I was working with a freelance writing coach, Ava, who taught me how to cold pitch and the importance of retainer contracts. So you can have a steady income stream of of money, basically, which we love. So basically in the beginning, it was cold pitching that did turn over to inbound leads through social media, I'd say within four months of freelancing. But the tips that I would give to someone who is cold pitching, I mean, there are a half a dozen, but I'll keep it brief. 80-20, about them, 20% about you. They don't care about you. All they need to know is your name, and you show your link to your prior work that applies to them. That's another tip. Never link to your portfolio. Link to specific pieces that are directly relevant to their field. Um, make sure you've done your research. One sentence that's like, I love your brand. I love your product. Isn't going to cut it. That's just copy paste. What can you notice from them? What problems specifically are they facing? So highlight the problem offer solutions and ideas at the table. So when I first started cold pitching, I would offer five article ideas. 
that I researched based on their brand, their target audience. And then from there, I would take one article title and break it down a little bit further and say, if we wanted to go with this idea, we could break it down to like H2 header, H3, H4. Let me know how this sounds like. I could start next Tuesday if that works for you not actually work next Tuesday, but that's another tip is make it as easy as possible for the person to say yes or no and follow up. Something vague like let me know isn't as action oriented as something like I can start next week. So yeah, make it specific, make it about them and make it clear that you've done your research. Yeah. Make the yes easy is one of these like super, uh, like when you think about it, it it's like, of course, that's what you want to do in sales. But in reality, yeah. it takes kind of like training. Like you said, like you almost need to like spoon feed people answers uh, mm-hmm. when you're, you know, selling them. Like you want to make it as easy for them to say yes as possible and like, you know, reduce uh, as many problems as as you can with them. I'm curious to hear your opinion on platforms like Upwork or Fiverr because there's almost like this big polarity in the freelance mm-hmm. world in for people who are like, I love Upwork. I love the fact that I can find a lot of clients there. I love the fact that if I have a profile on there, I can always expect there to be inbound mm-hmm. leads. And then there's one, uh, you know, the other side of freelance that is like, absolutely not to Upwork. Where do you stand yeah. on that? And like, what are your views on it? Yeah, honestly, it's, I'm the type of freelancer that if you were coaching with me, I would not bring you to Upwork or Fiverr. But it, I'm saying it is entirely possible for you to get a start in Fiverr or Upwork. Like you can start a profitable business there, especially if you're feeling really shaky about your writing capabilities, um, you know, your grammar and stuff like that. It's a really good platform to practice and it teaches you a lot. So I wouldn't write it off, but the way I see it, Fiverr and Upwork, it's like it's a game, right? And you're not going to start getting that valuable experience with the high paying clients until you've played the game enough to have enough credits, to have enough reputation, to have enough of a portfolio. It is a game that takes a lot of work and dedication. Ask yourself, might it be worth it to take those energy and resources towards another game, another game where you are cold pitching and building a personal brand through social media platforms like your website, Medium, or Twitter. So just ask yourself, it is possible both routes, but it will require energy either way. Yeah, I almost look at it as like, uh, and this is like whenever I work with students is I always tell them like, it's a marketing channel. So for me, Mm -hmm. like the right answer Mm -hmm. is always like, never put all of your, you know, like never put all of your energy in one channel because the channel can go away. Right. Like, and for, like I would say is like, you've picked Twitter and you're going with Twitter and that's your version of Upwork. But like, my thing is always like, what happens if Upwork kicks you off or if Twitter kicks you off or something, you know, your rating on Upwork falls for whatever reason, like you almost want to have all these marketing channels and having some, you know, like backup plans is always good. But like you said, like you need to play the game with Upwork. You need to play the game with mm-hmm. all these different channels. Um, you mentioned, you know, charging and prices. I'm assuming when you got started writing, you weren't, you know, charging uh, a ton of money because you kind of had to prove yourself. How do you go about raising your prices as you get more uh, experience, and as you get more work under your belt? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And there's so many different principles you can apply with that. If you are a freelancer working with an existing client, the first price you give them is the price they are going to want to stick to. 
will be very difficult for you to make a big leap unless they're doubling the scope of your work. The most I'd recommend for that kind of thing where it's an existing client relationship is perhaps when it's uh, the holidays, New Year's, and you're you know upping your prices because it's been a year down uh, like under your belt, or maybe it's been a year since you've been working with them and you know and understand that you're a valuable asset to their team, you may bump it up like 10, 15, 20%, but I wouldn't hold your breath that you're going to like double your income overnight. So just keep that in mind, which brings me to my next point, which is that every time you get a new client that is coming to you with you know, asking and inquiring about your prices, know that the price you tell them will be a price for the long term. So make sure you hold that into account before you say a number willy-nilly. And for the record, when you are pricing your services, it is a healthy indicator when a client is like, that's too expensive. Not every single client. You don't want to scare away like everyone. But if you haven't had someone tell you in a long time, that's expensive, then you're not, you're not charging high enough. Yeah, we actually had a guest on the podcast. His name is Ben McAdam. And uh, I love the way that he taught this. He said, if 30% of your clients or your uh, possible clients aren't saying your work is too expensive, you're not charging enough. So a healthy, uh, and he's a he's a phenomenal mm-hmm. entrepreneur. And so he, he essentially suggests, you want three out of 10 people to tell you your prices are too expensive. And if they're not, mm-hmm. you're not charging enough. But how do you, mm-hmm. like, what would be because in the beginning you want to obviously get as much work as you can. So you want to not charge as much money, right? In order to get more experience. So then are you saying that the only way to charge more money would be to charge more money to the next client and to sort of leave behind the clients that you were charging less for in the beginning? Honestly, I don't know if there's like a perfect answer to that question. It really is so contingent on your situation. Um, I think that's just like one of the gambles of your first year freelancing. You have to determine your skills. You have to be able to deliver something and then see the result from that piece. So then you can then use that data to up your prices. Like let's say you have a relationship with an existing client. You're like you lowball your prices because you're uncertain and you deliver a killer piece that has amazing like, you know, like reviews. Uh, it's doing, it's getting a lot of traction. Then you can use that as ammo and be like, I'm actually going to like you prove your worth a little bit. So Mm -hmm. I'd say it's flexible. There's space there for sure, but it's murky territory. Definitely. Sure. So Mm -hmm. let's transition a little bit, uh, and talk about the future of work and the creator economy, because I know that's something that you're very passionate about. And I'm, I love to talk about the future of work and what the economy is going to look like in the future. So what are sort of the things that you're looking out for? Like if I were to just say like, Hey, what do you think the future of work looks like in the next 10 years? What are maybe like the three, five most important things that you're keeping an eye out for that if you had to bet money on, uh, what would those things be? Good question. Yeah, I would say first and foremost, uh, I think Mary Forleo coined this term called multi-passionate entrepreneurs. So multi-passionate just means that instead of being one thing, like I am a freelance writer or I am an engineer, people are a plethora of different things because in reality, we're multifaceted people, right? So in the future, for instance, I don't want to be just a writer, a freelance writer. I want to be a content creator. I want to be a freelance writing coach, Um and all these different things. So I think in the future, people are going to have multiple roles and not just identify with one career title. Secondly, freelancing. I mean, I think the data already shows that more than I think half of the American workforce will be freelance by 2027. 
it's going to be a big boom of freelancers. So excited for that. A little nervous, but also exciting. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, this is an evident one, but digital nomadism is going to also take off when people realize they just literally don't have to be where they are if they don't want to. So I'd say those are the top three off the bat. Yeah. In terms of being like the multi-passionate, like you said, uh, there's a really great Ted talk, uh, by Emily Wapnick and she calls mm -hmm. it multi-potentialites, uh, which oh. is essentially like, Hey, like we're, you know, we have a lot of different skills. We have a lot of different passions. Like you don't need to be. I am an accountant or whatever. And I do, I completely agree with you because I think not only is the future going to be one where we have many different careers as we learn new skills, as maybe a past skill becomes automated and there's just no job market for it anymore. Um, but also like, I think it's what makes you interesting, right? So Mm -hmm, you being yeah. a writer who's interested in these different things is what's going to make you win over a contract as opposed to somebody who is a writer but isn't interested in those things because maybe you match those clients better. And so I mm -hmm. think kind of like promoting more and talking more about all of the different passions that you have is actually a very powerful tool in your arsenal. Uh, tell me a little bit about the future of freelancing. Uh, like, let's kind of like, quote unquote, double click on this and, and learn more <laughs> about what you think about your, you know, what the future of freelancing looks like. Gosh, that's a, it's a meaty, meaty subject. I think first and foremost, I would love to see the infrastructure surrounding freelancing become more developed. Um, it would be awesome if there was like more well-known because we don't have those benefits, right? Because we're not in-house employees. So to see like 401k matching, paid time off, health insurance, if having that infrastructure was, if it was developed for freelancers more common, that would be amazing. And we're already starting to see that with certain platforms. A lot of uh, fintech companies are coming out ready to support freelancers. And that's great. You know, we love having like financial tools to sort our finances and all that jazz. But health insurance would also be pretty good. So hopefully that would be the big one. I don't know. What what do you think? For me, the big one is education because I don't yeah. think we are educating kids, whether they be high school or college, to function mm. in a freelance-led economy. I think our yeah. education is still set up for a nine-to-five corporate structure. And as you know, mm -hmm. that's a very different skill set, very different muscles that you need to train. And it can be really scary to become a freelancer because, you know, yeah. you kind of, you're an entrepreneur and you need to get used to this. Hey, this month I'm making 10K, next month I don't make anything. And then two months from now I make, you know, X number and, you know, kind of like figuring out how to live in that reality is, is mm -hmm. very, very different from, you know, a corporate world. Yeah. 100%. It's a whole different skill set. How do you manage that? I mean, like if you were to, if we were to kind of like talk about the education, at least like what are some things that you would change? Uh, what are some things that you would teach kids that are coming out of school, out of college on how to actually function well in a freelance economy? Yeah. I mean, gosh, at first I would just like the basics, which is just to teach kids or got like post-college grads that nine, the nine to five is not the only route. When I first graduated, I thought that I was destined for a cubicle and the thought made me really, really sad. <laughs> but in reality, there are so many paths. And I mean, half of these jobs that the future is going to have doesn't even exist yet. So it would be good to just know that freelancing is an option if you're game for it. Additionally, I would say that 
you know, a lot of people think that in specifically in terms of freelance writing, they're like, I can't wait to be a freelance writer. I just love writing. And it's like, you're doing very little actual writing. You have to develop a really heavy skill set that is everything from marketing yourself, advertising, finances. You have to be your own, like, you have to really have an all-encompassing toolkit and also have a lot of entrepreneurial spirit because you quite literally are creating a business from your own skills and capabilities. So just know that if that is a career path you are pursuing, and that's why it does suit so many people because they do have all those different passions and skill sets and they're able to combine them and coalesce into this one profession. But yeah, it's it's not what meets the eye. There's a lot more to it. Do you think everyone can be entrepreneurial or do you think that it's it's not something that everyone can do, right? Because like you said, like, and we've been kind of saying is like, whether you call yourself a freelancer or an entrepreneur, it's kind of the mm-hmm. same thing. Uh, so do you think yeah. everyone has the capacity to be an entrepreneur or or not? No, I don't. But the, the thing is, is like, there's nothing bad with that. For instance, like, the whole nine to five spiel gets a lot of like a lot of hate recently where it's like, I could never live a nine to five. I could never be in a cubicle. But it's like for some people, they love their nine to five. And I get it. They have a steady paycheck, a comforting position with great coworkers. And for some people, it is exactly what's perfect for them. And there's nothing wrong with that. For other people, they want to take on this entrepreneurial mindset. But like, I'll just say this. I've spoken to quite a few aspiring writers, aspiring freelancers, and honestly, I don't think more than half of them will make it. And it's not because they're not talented or they don't have what it takes, but a lot of people just start off really misguided and think that freelancing is almost like an option if you don't have skills or credibility. People are like, oh, I can't get this job, so like, how can I start freelancing? And don't be fooled. Like you have to develop just as much of a skill set, if not more, because you don't have a an agency name to protect you when you're trying to get those credentials. So all I'm saying is you're not going to be kicking it by the beach, enjoying yourself while you're building your business. Your first year is going to test the hell out of you. So just ask yourself, do I want it badly enough to go through all of that? And if you do, then yeah, fuck yeah, you can be an entrepreneur. <laughs> So for people who are, you know, listening to this and who want to sort of jump into freelancing, who want to, you know, they're the people that are like, I want to pursue this. I want to do this. What sort of education uh, resources do you have for them? Like, I know that you said that you spoke with uh, or that you worked with a freelancing coach, but what other resources do you recommend people check out in order to learn the skills that they need, not just the skills that they're selling, like for you copywriting, but also like Mm -hmm. the other background skills uh, that they need to know in order to run a business? Yeah, I would say the most influential book I read about this whole shebang is Art for Money by Michael Arbadine. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So that book is a fantastic, small, but powerful book that teaches freelancers why they should charge more money, um, how to write a project, a proper project proposal that will protect you from things like rush fees and unaccounted call times. It'll teach you about negotiation and things of that nature. I'd also say uh, Chris Doe from Future, F-U-T-R, is an amazing, amazing mentor, fantastic freelance coach, and also just life coach in general. His stuff on YouTube has been majorly influential. And 
as a big like personal development nerd, a lot of these books have helped me gain the confidence to go after this and the resilience to keep going even when it gets hard. So I would say the courage to be disliked was a huge influence as well as how to or you are a badass, as cringy as it is. I don't like promoting it that much, but it really helped. So yeah, those books were super influential as well. Yeah, it's kind of like the book uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's yeah. such an amazing book, but you don't want to be seen in public reading the book because yeah, it's sort you of feel like, so that's cringe. weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. I'd also toss into that Jake Klaus. Uh, my friend Jake Klaus is an amazing series mm. on freelancing. Uh, okay. And that, it helped me a lot. So for anybody listening, I'd definitely recommend checking that out uh, as well. Tell me a little bit about the creator economy. Obviously, you're creating a lot of content on Twitter. Uh, you write a lot on places like Medium as well. Like, what do you see, like, the same way that we talked about the future of work? Like, what do you see in terms of, like, the creator economy uh, as being, like, the next 10 years? Yeah, I think the first thing that I think about is that we used to think of creators kind of like content creators, people who are making vlogs, posting on TikTok, even some bloggers. But I think more and more writers are being considered con like creators and the digital infrastructure being built around them is becoming more and more prominent. We're seeing this with platforms like Substack, Medium, Quora. I mean, there's literally dozens and dozens. I can't even think of them all right now. But to be a writer is such a good time to be doing it. So I think the definition of being a creator is expanding tenfold. Do you think that everyone in the future is going to be a creator? That's a good question, right? Because then we get into CD, like murky waters. What exactly does it mean to be a creator? If you post a TikTok, does that make you a creator? Um, when is it someone who's just participating in social media versus someone who is making it as a viable lifestyle and business choice? Because that's also the thing. People create not always to monetize, but just to have that outlet to do so. So do I think everyone is a creator? Yeah, everyone has that capability, but it also depends on what being a creator means to you. Does being a creator mean making money from it or does it mean having free like reign over what it is you want to make? So it, it really could be go in so many different directions. Yeah, I think like the more that we enter this digital world in all parts of our lives, uh, you know, whether it's be working online or now with like mm -hmm. the metaverse, like you can yeah. like hang out online and do all of it. Not that you can hang out online before, but like, you know what I mean? There's like so much more of this that uh -huh. I really think in order for you to have a business, make money online, you're going to have to create something in that digital space. Like, you know, and there's so many new definitions of that. Like I spoke with somebody a few weeks ago who is like a metaverse architect, which oh is gosh. not something I knew was a thing, but you know, he's working with like yeah. companies to create in the metaverse. And I think like to me, that is such an interesting new field of seeing more and more people add to uh, the digital world. So it's going to be very interesting to see. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your, you know, kind of like your plans for how are you going to or how do you plan on working and continuing to run your business now that you're entering the digital nomad life? Like what sort of new challenges are you preparing for uh, as, as you're combining these two things? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when you become a digital nomad, you swap out one challenge for another in the sense that, for instance, so I was a bit of a digital nomad. Just a few months ago, I was in Costa Rica for six weeks. And before leaving Costa Rica, I was battling a lot of feelings in terms of intertwining my self-worth with the status of my business. So naturally freelancing has ebb and flows. There's months where you do great and there's other months where not a lot happens. And in those months of quiet, at least in my case, it was super easy to be like, I suck. I'm not good at this, blah, blah, blah. Um, and when I was abroad, my that, that disappeared. That completely went away. I was like, I did my work. I did my job. Um, I'm going to go do something else now. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to go talk to people. I'm going to go explore. So you trade things like that. You're able to sort of remove yourself from your business because you realize that there is a whole world out there that is so much more than just labor, right? But in exchange for giving up that struggle, you then bring in the struggle of how can I make sure to prioritize my business so that it continues to grow and is sustainable and can afford me this lifestyle without like getting distracted by all the amazing opportunities that traveling can bring you. So because I haven't really dove into that lifestyle full force, I don't have the answer yet, but I will keep you posted. (laughs) But that's what I'm expecting to, yeah, to face head on. How do you, I think we touched on a very important topic there is like, how do you manage your, like your work-life balance? Because I know that like when COVID hit and everybody had to Mm -hmm. go work remotely, companies were really concerned about like, well, nobody's going to work, right? And what we found out was that actually working remotely, you end up overworking. Mm -hmm. You know, you people start Mm -hmm. working at 7, they end working at 8 p.m. How do you manage that? Uh, Like I know that you said that you get work done and, you know, when you're traveling, you can go out and, and, you know, do things in that location. But how do you manage that on a day-to-day basis even now when you're not traveling? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the – so I burnt out a few months into my freelance writing career and one of the most important takeaways I had from it was that it was – it's so easy to feel like the more you sit at your desk, the more you're getting done. But in reality, you're only productive for three to four hours a day tops before it just goes downstream. So having that realization, that stepping away from the desk, that working out, seeing friends, sleeping in is part of the productivity cycle at large that you will literally do better, be better, hand in higher quality work if you walk away was huge to realize. Now I go to the gym almost every day. I never feel bad. I'm never like, I shouldn't be here. I should be working because the way I see it is I'm glad to be here. This is going to make me better tomorrow. So having that realization was huge. And yeah, just doing a lot of internal work to be able to separate the fact that you are not your work and that if work is slow, you're not a terrible person or a bad freelancer. It's just the way things are. And you can't control the situation, but you can control your mindset around it. And that is twice as powerful. I also think this is something that I learned recently, and I wish I I can remember where I read this or heard this uh, to give them credit, but uh, realizing that burnout isn't overworking, it's actually Mm -hmm. having a lack of clarity, right? Because there's so many people Mm. that are like work all the time and they don't get burnout. And it's usually because they have a very clear goal. They have a very clear vision. They have a lot of clarity about what they do. And usually burnout happens is like, when you feel like you're spinning your wheels, but not necessarily feeling like you're making progress because you have a lack mm-hmm. of clarity. And for me, realizing this, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense because you hear of these people that are just working all the time uh, and they yeah. don't 
any sort of burnout. So I think uh, that that's really, really important. But mm-hmm. Elise, I want to say thank you so much uh, yeah. for coming on the podcast. This has been a ton of fun uh, hearing about your journey. I think it's so inspiring, can inspire a lot of people listening as well. Uh, you can start a freelancing business as well, not just as a copywriter. There's so many opportunities out there that if you do want to do this, it's right there for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people want to connect with you, where can they find you? Obviously, you mentioned Twitter. Uh, where can they find you on Twitter? And is there any other place that you want them to follow you? Yeah, no, I think Twitter is the best way to reach me. It's just Twitter at Elise L. LeMay, L-E-M-E-E. If you want me to, if you have a pressing question or anything, email is probably best because my DMs are scary. So I would say just send me an email at Elise at EliseLeMay.com. And uh, if you want to catch up in terms of if you want to see how this whole digital nomad path unravels, if you're curious about how to build a freelance writing business and other tips to be a more prolific creator, then you can sign up for my newsletter internally, which is on my website. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, Well, that's it, Elise. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. This, This has been a ton of fun. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.